Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable here on WPKN in Bridgeport. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show, as usual, is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing in Central Connecticut State University member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us again in the studio this morning. Richard Hill, also here in the studio, is host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio in Organic Farm Stand. He's also a rotating host of Mic Check, and Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPCAN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs Monday evenings, and executive producer of the syndicated Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. This morning, we'll be joined by two guests. John Shelton, associate professor and chair of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and he's joined us here this morning to talk about his brand new book, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. And we'll also be speaking this morning with Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut at Storrs, who will be discussing the attack on American democracy seen most recently in Tennessee, as well as Donald Trump's indictment and the threat of violence from his supporters. And right now, we're very happy to welcome uh, Professor John Shelton to our Resistance Roundtable this morning. Professor Shelton, thanks so much for being here with us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. This is uh, really a pleasure, especially with this uh, uh, really distinguished group of uh, uh, the panel here. So thank you. Thank you for that. And just uh, by way of introduction, John Shelton is Associate Professor and Chair of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. As I said earlier, he's the author of Teacher Strike, Public Education in the Making of a New American Political Order. And his latest book that we'll be talking about this morning, just published last month, is titled The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. And... To lead off our, our question and discussion this morning is Ruthann Baumgartner. Ruthann. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, talk to you, John, having uh, read the interview uh, about your book and then had that quick little correspondence with you. I felt a lot of resonance with your book, which I have ordered, but which I haven't had the time this week to curl up with, um, because I, I graduated from college in 1968 with a liberal arts degree, and it the, the four years that I was in college were the most exciting, intellectually exciting, and personally exciting years of my life. Um, when I started teaching, I had a lot of general studies majors, um, but they got very excited about the ideas that they were reading, too, and... Uh, uh, some of them converted, I would say, uh, flew up to um, liberal arts majors of, of some kind themselves. But then STEM started seeping in, and by the time I departed from the campuses, um, students would come to my office to complain that with the kinds of grades I was giving them, they would never be able to become important. Um, so I, I was wondering if, if uh, these kinds of ideas were... Um, percolating as you were, did your very interesting study about uh, uh, earlier times and nowadays. So, so Ruth, then basically, you just want me to justify <laughs> your uh, your stringent want, grading. I want you to tell me that uh, that I'm very wise and, and my priorities are right, right where they should be. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I'm joking, of course. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I think for me, um, you know, when I when I decided to write this book, I, I kind of started writing it in 2016, uh, 2017, really. But the ideas were kind of percolating in 2016. And that timeline is really important because there were really two reasons that I wrote it. Um, one was kind of thinking about my students. And I started teaching at UW-Green Bay in 2013. And, um, you know, uh, my students you know, they're, they're working class students, right? And, and they sound kind of similar to some of the students that you're describing who come through and see a university education very pragmatically. And at the same time, though, my students, even back then, you know, were looking at the future and kind of thinking, you know, even though I'm going to college, you know, my, my long-term economic outlook maybe actually isn't as great as it used to be for people who went to college. There was a lot of anxiety. I mean, a lot of them would have uh, older siblings or aunts and uncles, you know, who got a college degree and were working as a Starbucks barista. And so mm-hmm. it was like, well, I know I kind of have to do this because this is what our culture is telling us. Uh, but I'm also worried that I'm that I'm, you know, not going to have uh, a lo- good long-term economic outlook. And then the second thing was Donald Trump's election in 2016, and I think a lot of people were trying to figure out how to explain that, of course. But one of the statistics that really stood out to me was the wide gulf between college graduates who voted for Hillary Clinton and non-college graduates who voted for Donald Trump. And so I said, there has to be something to that. And when I started kind of looking into it, you know, one of the things that I, that I you know, noted was that the way Americans think about education has, and it's, it's very interesting that you mentioned 1968 because the sixties are very important in the book. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, the way Americans started thinking about public education has changed a lot over the last 50 years. So, um, you know, this idea uh, going all the way back to the 19th century that the primary reason to invest in public education was to train citizens in a democracy as imperfect as American society was in the 19th century, right? Racism and sexism, et cetera. I don't want to romanticize things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that, that, really continued to be the primary purpose of education for a very long time, actually, until, um, you know, uh, very deep into the about the halfway point of the, the 1900s. And, you know, you can you can see that with the, the Truman Commission, which is this presidentially appointed commission in 1949, where they basically call for two years of tuition free education, but not because there's like a perceived skills gap or anything like that, but because in the context of the global Cold War, is more important than ever for Americans to be trained in how to access democracy. So in many ways, that's the kind of world that, that like structured those 20 years up until 1968. What happens though, is that um, uh, this idea of human capital, which is coined, the term is coined by these economists from the Chicago school starts to, to creep in and compete more and more with that sort of liberal democracy based education. And those ideas really kind of vie with each other. And I argue that by the time you get to like, the 1990s, the aughts, of course, with No Child Left Behind, um, you know, the, the, the education myth, as I call it, the idea that, you know, education tailored toward the needs of employers can magically overcome all of the economic inequality and, and lack of economic opportunity that exists in the country really rises to prominence, and that's the world we're living in now. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, I, I, uh, one of the classes I wound up teaching co- frequently in the last decade or so of my um, of my career was uh, colonial American literature. Not my field, but I was Jacobean uh, and Shakespearean uh, myself. But it's more or less in the same period, and I was struck then by the the lofty idea of one of the lofty ideas of the protestant movement which was that priests shouldn't tell you what's in the bible you should be able to read that for yourself and that's of course that opened a lot of cans of worms once they got over over here but the idea that the things you believe in should have been processed through your own mind is very liberating and it seems to me that that's what we used to think about politics too about education what you believe in you should understand and studying the liberal arts will help you do that college will help you do that that's what education uh, leading out of darkness if you want to get latin about it uh what 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 education really means is a chance to 
understand. And that should lead de- definitely and directly to democratic ideals, I would think. Do you, do you think that that's a, um, a leap? Or, uh, see, I just want to keep arguing that my, my, my studies were relevant <laughs> to my understanding. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, and, and for the record, I would love to take that colonial literature class. That sounds amazing. It's fascinating um, study. Yeah, I mean, I can say a couple of quick examples that would support what you're saying. So number one, uh, let's look at Thomas Jefferson. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson talked about, he, all the way back in the 1770s, he pushed for a system of public education in Virginia. Now, again, want to give the, the really important caveats here that he did not believe Native Americans or African Americans had the intellectual capacity mm-hmm. of white people. But basically what Jefferson argued in terms of and this was an advance because he was including essentially uh, non-elite white people in, in this in this call. You know, he basically said, if we're going to prevent tyranny in the future, we have to train citizens to see uh, tyranny and corruption in all its forms. We have to train them to be discerning uh, citizens in a democracy. Um, so, so you know, right right there at the sort of you know founding moment of our country, you have people like Jefferson. You know, of course, Jefferson, you know, uh, is the primary architect of the Declaration of Independence, so it's no surprise. But, you know, the, the point is he wasn't calling for education because he was like, you know, we got to make sure that everybody has job skills and the economy is good, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's, he's, he's calling for it for political reasons. And then you can look at, you know, I talk a lot in the book about my home state of Wisconsin because obviously, um, you know, I'm, I'm connected to it. And, but, I, but I see a lot of uh, things, national trends happening in our state. It's a purple state, right? And, and mirrors a lot of the trajectory of the country in that way, uh, because we've got two big cities and a, 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 a you know a wide ranging and, and now conservative rural population. And when the University of Wisconsin was founded in the late 1840s, uh, the you know the the day it was founded, the first chancellor, John Lathrop. I mean, to, to show you how much support there was. Imagine this happening today uh, for higher education. The entire city of Madison shut down and the chancellor gave wow. an address and he talked about he talked about education as the great leveler. But he didn't mean that it was going to be the great equalizer or leveler or whatever, because it was going to give working people job skills that was going to allow them to, you know, compete with <laughs> with uh, other middle class people. He said knowledge is the great leveler because it was so essential to democracy. And I think you can. I think you can carry that idea, uh, and, and you know, I think you can carry that idea up to the present. You know, and, and one of the thinkers that I really draw on in the book, um, in terms of like how we think about education, because you know, one of the things I've had to preemptively address a lot of times when I've talked about this book is like, I'm not anti-education, right? I just know that what I want people to understand is that a particular version of education can't magically transform the economy. So I had to think about, you know, and obviously this is something I do in my own teaching, but what it is that education can do. And I find Daniel Allen's work on uh, the connection between education and democracy, you know, political theorist from Harvard, uh, who's written a number of great books. Um, I find her uh, view really compelling. And what she says is, again, education can, uh, can uh, create more quality but not through job skills. It, it does that by empowering it to the premise of your question, Ruthann, um, you know, to, that it, it, it uh, allows people to understand where they're coming from and importantly allows them to be agents of change, helps them to organize essentially. Um, and that's how we actually make our democracy, you know, our country more democratic. And, and it does go through education to some extent, uh, but it, but it's not for the, it's not for the reasons that we hear from so many politicians um, in, in you know over the past few decades about how education and job skills and STEM and all these things are that's the way we're going to you know create more equality. I I I am tempted to just monopolize you for an hour, but I'm going to toss you back to Scott. <laughs> okay, I I did have a question, <laughs> Professor Shelton. In in your book, you discuss the reasons that an emphasis on an investment in education. To achieve the American dream is a mirage of of a kind, misleading millions of Americans to believe that the only path to achieve economic security is to compete with others to gain the educational skills necessary to get a good job and all that comes with it. What, What are some examples of other developed nations in the world that have a different system than the U.S., a social democratic system 
with a robust social safety net, universal health care and job guarantees that contributes to economic security without the expectation that education is the only way to achieve a secure future and, and overcome the inequality that we have growing every year in this country. Sure. Well, I mean, I don't write extensively about Europe in the book, but, uh, you know, there's you could pretty much pick uh, virtually any European country, uh, at least in Western Europe, and and point to the social democratic state that they have there. Right. So like um, in the in the Nordic countries, um, I think it's uh, Sweden, maybe, um, you know, people aren't worried about unemployment because if somebody ends up losing their job, um, they, they're kind of put on a path to, uh, you know, ensuring that they have pretty robust unemployment benefits and, you know, like actually retrain for a job, not just the promise of like, hey, like go to a, a technical college and get these new skills and hope someone hires you, like actually put on the path to that. Um, you could look at, I mean, I mean, look at what's happening in, in France right now with the, the protest against raising the retirement age uh, a couple, like, what is it, from 60 to 62 um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a sort of wide-ranging promise of uh, social welfare that, you know, we don't, we don't really have in this country. Um, Germany, where uh, the trade union, where, you know, you have uh, workers who are literally on the boards of a lot of uh, uh, corporations, uh, because the understanding is that if workers have more power, then, um, you know, the, everybody's jobs and everybody's economic life is going to be better. But I would even say, Scott, to the... The, the, the premise of this question, one of the things that I've pushed people away from is, is saying that we have to like look to Europe to do these things. We actually have the promise of these things in our own past. And so, you know, one of the distinctions that I kind of make here is if you go back to the New Deal, this moment of really important social and economic advances, you know, you had a moment where uh, labor policy brought millions of workers into unions, you had the advent of Social Security. You had, um, you know, one of the long forgotten parts of the New Deal, at least you all probably know it, but in terms of popular culture, is the Works Progress Administration, which literally halved the unemployment rate, put millions of people to work by just giving them jobs um, and you know, in connection with what a community needed. And so when you get to the end of the Roosevelt administration in the 1940s, FDR is actually calling for an economic bill of rights that includes a job, healthcare, housing, uh, the right for you know small business people to operate free of monopoly, and the last of those rights is education. But it is the last of those rights, right? And so, and FDR saw this as again important for the premise of democracy, not because this is how people were going to get jobs. And you know, so for much of that post-war period, even though the United States maybe doesn't uh, get quite to the point that some European countries do. That's, I argue that's, that's actually one of the sort of critical um, uh, political pivot points in the country from about the 1940s until the 1970s. Again, this moment in the 60s and 70s when you have this human capital idea kind of buying with this bigger social democratic promise. And so you have things like Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph's freedom budget in the 1960s, which essentially calls for the actualization of FDR's Second Bill of Rights. You've got Coretta Scott King, Hubert Humphrey, and Augustus Hawkins fighting for a jobs guarantee in the 1970s. Um, unfortunately, they don't win, but look at the Democratic Party platform in 1976. The right to a job is central to that platform, and it's, and it's only because the party itself in, in the years kind of after that move in a, in a more kind of professional class direction under Jimmy Carter that it doesn't happen. So, you know, I think we can, we've come really close to some things that could have uh, dramatically changed how things operate in our own country, and that's the past that I think we, that, that's the example that I really think we need to look to because we don't need to, in my view, say, okay, let's replicate what they're doing in Europe. Let's, let's um, create, let's, let's build on our progressive traditions to create a social democratic future in this own country, in our own country. Uh, no, that's important to look back to uh, the FDR era and its promise. And unfortunately, as you said, not, not a fulfillment. Richard Hill has our, our next question or comment. Yeah, John, thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to ask you to, to explore what I think you're, you're doing in your article that I read is linking 
the rise of the neoliberal sort of scourge, I would call it, with this notion that, uh, you know, there's a meritocracy in which people and citizens need to earn their place in a stable economic structure. It's all based on, you know, this balls out competition that you have to actually get a notch in your belt through education to earn your place in that. Can you explore a little further that that idea of this rise of a, a real shift and sharpening of the elbows of capitalism with this uh, rise of the notion of a meritocracy? Yeah, Richard, that's such a good question. Um, you know, uh, it, first of all, it, it's, it's fascinating that I feel like maybe five or six years ago, there was a mini movement to uh, problematize the very term neoliberalism, right? Which you know, I, to me, is a is a very very useful um, uh, you know uh, analytical term that that stands for, you know, actually sharpening the elbows of capitalism might be a good way to to define neoliberalism in a in a in a kind of shorthand, right? Um, it, it's the idea that you you create more competition, and you know, to me, one of the things that really distinguishes it from other areas of capitalism is that there's an active privatization of public services with the idea that less should be provided for people and they need to compete with each other. Now, um, and so I, I, it's, it's interesting because I feel like there's not that movement to problematize neoliberal anymore. It's just become really kind of embedded as a useful political, more and more people understand it, especially young people. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 the term human capital and the implicit or actually explicit uh, competition that, that comes from that you know, does a lot of really important work in this shift toward neoliberal capitalism. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that, that may actually be the, the uh, central thing that I add in the book, because, um, you know, other people have documented the shift toward neoliberalism. I think what I tried to do is, to me, education seemed like a missing piece, that um, this promise of education, which is just become so commonsensical that so many Americans can't even step away from what they expect it to do. Um, that, the, that, the, that, that the work that that term does and the work that that human capital competition does in our political system uh, is so important, but no one has really, I think, done a good enough job of naming that. So when you go back to the 1950s, which is when these two economists, uh, uh, and there's others that were using the term, but Theodore Schultz is the main one, uh, kind of a neo-Keynesian out of the Chicago school. And then Gary Becker, uh, more of a, on the sort of libertarian Milton Friedman end of the Chicago school. Uh, they, they, were, they probably did the most to coin the term and popularize it in the 50s and 60s. And the, and the term is so fascinating because, you know, when Becker first wrote about this, he said, you know, it's really difficult to use the term human capital because people associate it with slavery, <laughs> you know, because mm – -hmm. Um, the literal, when the term was used in the 19th century, it literally meant the human capital that uh, was represented in enslaved people, right? So uh, there was some work that needed to be done to rehabilitate it. But by calling workers human capital, right, it, it, I, point, I point, this, point to this in the book, it, it completely scrubs away the actual labor relationship that exists under capitalism, right? So a worker cannot be capital. They are selling their labor every day, and the employer is taking a portion of that value in order to um, produce profits. You don't have to be a hardcore Marxist to see that, right? No one is employing workers, you know, out of, out of the goodness of their heart, unless maybe they run a nonprofit or something, but we're talking about, you know, a capitalist enterprise. So what human capital does is it, it creates this fiction that if you just go out and, and that you yourself are capital. And if you add the right skills by getting the right education or the right job training, you're going to enhance your earning ability, your, your ability to you know, accumulate. Essentially, it's saying that your wages are your profits based on your own individual investment. So the work that that does is twofold. Number one, it convinces politicians that they don't have to make any tough choices. They don't have to rearrange any power structures, which is the, the kind of uh, competition that the Johnson administration underwent in the 1960s, right? On the one hand, you've got Medi been, been passing Medicare and Medicaid. On the other hand, they're passing these education policies that implicitly blame poor people 
actually, in many cases, explicitly blame poor people, especially black people, for not having the right job skills when there are no jobs in the inner cities. Um, so that's number one. It, it, it narrows the sense of what's you know, politically necessary or even politically possible. Uh, but number two, it blames workers themselves when they don't get the you know, economic security in the labor market, which um, you know, disempowers them, leaves them disengaged with the, the um, political system. And it's one reason that we have seen, I, I really do think this, in the past 10 or 20 years, so much disaffection and turmoil in our political system where you have people up until very recently uh, turning away from uh, voting or voting for extreme reactionaries like Donald Trump. So I think that work is really important. And I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful because I think a lot of young people now in particular are really kind of like naming this and, and acting on it. Um, but, it, but yeah, it's, it's, it has done so much work to damage our, that idea has done so much work to damage our political system. Ruth Ann, did you have a follow-up on that? So many ideas come from the things that you said, and I'm having a sorting problem, but I think Richard has some. Yeah, I, I could follow up a little bit on that, uh, John. The second half of our show is, is going to be a conversation about, you know, the rising threat of fascism in this country. <laughs> so many examples of it that sign the red alert that we need to uh, pay attention to. But I'm wondering... Is there a connection in this neoliberalism and the notion of putting all the responsibility on potential workers to develop the skills and achieve through education or some other means the leverage to participate as viable economic entities in this culture, in this society? Is there a connection between that and, you know, Trumpism and the kind of threats that we see now uh, emerging? Yes. If I could give you an accurate percentage above 100 percent, I would do that. Uh, okay. Yes, 150 percent. And it's essentially and maybe this will help kind of frame the second half of the conversation. Even, you know, we have a choice in this country in the next decade or so about whether we're going to have fascism or social democracy. It's going to be one of the two. Uh, it, is, it just is. And the connection, there's there's so many things I could talk about. But, you know, this, this idea, the global economy is really important in this because, um, you know, go back to Bill Clinton for a second in the 1990s. And, you know, Clinton runs uh, for president in 1992 on this campaign that's really built around education. Um, he essentially says, we've got a global economy now. Let's uh, not even really worry too much about protecting workers because we can't. He says, you know, it's global now. There's nothing we can do. It just throws up his hands, essentially. But what we're going to do is we're going to um, uh, invest in workers' human capital. It's kind of a softer version of the individual investment in human capital, right? The idea is that society can provide a better education system. And so Clinton finishes up with negotiating NAFTA, you know, in, in 1993, Republican idea, only gets passed with Republican support, by the way, NAFTA, only gets ratified over the objections of labor. Hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs, and these are blue-collar workers. And so you can trace the things Trump did all the way back to the 90s. Check out uh, Pat Buchanan's election, uh, his, his primary uh, Republican um, uh, primary fight in 1996, where he says things like, what's the point of a, of a society or a politics if it can't basically protect its own citizens, if it can't protect their, you know, blue-collar jobs? And so you can draw a straight line from that. I, I spent a lot of time talking about Scott Walker in my state and how – Walker used the economic pain that a lot of blue-collar workers were feeling after 2008 and took that out on public employees, taking away bargaining rights from public employees in our state, of course, and then um, doing things to the university system, like defunding it, taking tenure and shared governance out of state statute. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He was, he was exploiting the fact that so many blue-collar people felt like uh, a political system had, had basically privileged those people who uh, had, were able to get college degrees, um, not just in terms of economics, but also in terms of what Michael Sandel, if y'all haven't read this book, you need to check it out. Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit, what Michael Sandel points out is the loss of social esteem when you have a system that's based on this idea, uh, this fake idea, uh, really, of meritocracy. And so when Trump gets elected in 2016, he's not just coming out of nowhere, right? Like, He's building on Pat Buchanan. He's building on the Tea Party. He's building on Scott Walker and all these trends. 
And look at what Ron DeSantis is doing right now. I mean, it's, it's like uh, Scott Walker on steroids, weaponizing every kind of cultural, perceived cultural in, insult with the, the lack, the, the kind of disaffection that, that so many working people feel with our political system and using that to political advantage. And so, you know, uh, 2024 is going to be all about which of those two reactionaries probably ends up getting the nomination and how we stop them. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Professor Shelton. It's been a pleasure, and uh, we're only really scratching the surface of the issues raised in your new book, again, the title of which is The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy. And is there a, a, a website you'd want to refer our listeners to where they can find some of the interviews and recent articles that you've written in association with the book? Yeah, so um, you can you can obviously check out Cornell University Press. Uh, I have a, a recent um, op-ed, and um, it's going to be coming out this weekend, actually, in the Real News. Uh, the, uh, sorry, the History News Network. And you can also follow me on on Twitter at uh, Prof Underbar Shelton. Excellent. Well, thank you again from from all of us and our listeners as well for raising this important topic, which isn't uh, discussed nearly as enough. Yeah, for sure. Good luck with the rest of your show. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And that was uh, John Shelton, Associate Professor and Chair of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Again, his book is titled The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy. And right now, we're very happy to welcome to our program Christopher Viles, Professor of English and Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut at Storrs, who will be discussing uh, the attack on American democracy seen most recently in Tennessee and uh, Donald Trump's indictment as well as something I'm sure we'll be touching on. Professor Viles, thank you so much for making time to come on our program this morning. Uh, thanks for, so much for having me, Scott. So I'm here with our, our co-hosts, uh, Ruthann Baumgartner and Richard Hill, and I think I'll, I'll just sort of launch the discussion with the question relating to recent events in Tennessee. Professor Viles, after the Nashville school shooting and, and the subsequent gun safety protests by students and, and parents at the state capitol, the Republican supermajority expelled two black representatives, that's Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, as many of our listeners are well aware, uh, for what they said was their participation in those protests. A third representative, a white woman who was involved in the same protest, was not expelled. This incident reminds us of the Republican Party's national embrace of racism and the white supremacy and one-party rule that uses the tools of voter suppression, gerrymandering, political violence, invalidating majority votes on referendums, terminating elected uh, district attorneys, city councils, banning books, erasing American history. You could go on and on and hear about the stigmatizing of uh, LGBTQ literature, criminalizing drag shows, and then, of course, overturning nearly 50 years of federal protections for abortion and reproductive rights. And, of course, just yesterday, a GOP extremist judge outlawing medication abortion nationally, all in an effort to enforce minority rule that some observers believe is an unthinkable turn toward authoritarianism and fascism. I'm wondering if you could <laughs> tie all this in together with what we saw in Tennessee, because it's not, in my view, and maybe many of your listeners' view, it's not just Tennessee. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the the, uh, the South, where I'm from, and where I am right now, I'm, I'm calling in from Texas, um, does have its own kind of history with democracy, right? Um, kind of a racialized democracy where you know voting is for the whites and um, not for everyone else, right? And you know you see that that is that is fully in display and, and you know fully. Um, continuous with history and you're you you know that the what's happening in tennessee is certainly echoes of that um you know the the bigger question to me as somebody who studies fascism as well is how does some of those kind of traditionally american as apple pie ways of restricting democracy how do those overlap with histories of um you know what we consider authoritarianism and dictatorship and fascism etc right um 
And what is kind of even more alarming to me um, than, than, you know, that the, the kind of the expelling of reps in, in Tennessee is also just very, very much kind of in line with a very Southern history of voter suppression based on race, right? Or like the stifling voices based on race, right? Um, and not, not to say that that's a uniquely Southern history. It certainly is not, but it's got a visceral kind of component there, um, you know, with the um, in North Carolina in the, in the very early 20th century, um, you have the, you know, you have the overt kind of coup d'etats against kind of populist movements there. Um, but what's even more alarming to me, though, is the, some of the stuff with, um, Trump is, you know, and his, um, calls for overt kind of calls for violence in wake of his indictment, right? Um, where he is posing online with, um, you know, a baseball bat. You know, he posts this meme of himself um, coming up behind Alvin Bragg with a baseball bat. Um, and he's, you know, claiming there's going to be death and destruction if he's indicted. Now, you know, we've kind of normalized that kind of stuff because we've seen it for so long. But what's, what's striking about that is that's not just some kind of random like uh, super fan of Trump posting fine kind of violence means memes that's the president ex-president himself um, like symbolically enacting violence against his enemies in ways that send unmistakable messages to his fans right and that is not something we've really seen so much in the 20th and 21st centuries um, for someone running for, for office right that to me is a more kind of newer and more novel turn um, than the stuff we saw happening in Tennessee which is you know, classic, uh, you know, American um, racist suppression. Well, thank you for that. We have Ruth Ann and Richard Hill, and I believe Richard has a question for you. Yeah, I guess I, I wanted to follow up on that, Christopher, with a question about the Tennessee uh, atrocity that we saw the other night. As I was watching it, the expulsion of Pearson and Jones, I sort of flashed on this phrase that I remembered from the uh, late 80s when George H.W. Bush used the term a thousand points of light. I don't know why that came to me, but uh, suddenly I realized that there seems to be a sense now that we have the, a thousand points of fascism, you know, these little blinking lights, pinpricks, you know, that are happening all over the country. They're cropping up around the U.S. And I, I wonder if you think that this, uh, I don't know, firmament, I guess, of little incidents have the potential of knitting together into a wave that could actually engulf this nation in a real fascist threat that right now appears to be very fragmented. Yeah, no, I think that's a great comment and a great um, articulation of the issue, right? And uh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, so what, you know, what, what we're seeing right now, what we have kind of seen is, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I wrote a book on, you know, kind of American anti-fascism back in 2014 um, that was during the Obama era. And I kind of even prematurely, um, you know, um, made a prediction that, oh, I don't think we're going to see like actual something close to actual fascism at the presidential level. Um, but I think what what we've seen with Trump and Trumpism and white nationalism and whatever we want to call it um, is the way in which it's demonstrated beyond belief that at least a third of the electorate is fully primed and fully prepared to go in an authoritarian direction, um, buying into a, the, the election is stolen myth. Um, but also as on the ground, I think going back to Tennessee as well is, um, you know, what is this protest over? What, I mean, what is the suppression of these, of these, uh, these two, um, congressmen in uh, in link to and that's guns right um and that's also something that's become kind of normalized i think to people on the left and liberals of the united states which you know you're just kind of used to seeing you know um you know uh, like icons of assault rifles on the back on bumper stickers on the back of pickup trucks or what have you um you're kind of used to <clears throat> the the right talking about guns and you 
really shouldn't get used to that, you know. Um, and I think if because the way in which they've kind of stockpiled weaponry in the last 10 years um, is really striking. I mean, the left has started to pick up on that, too, and started to kind of stockpile guns on their own, which you would also somewhat expect. Um, but the way in which the, this, the issue of guns is, has become so central to the identity of so large numbers of people on the right is, is striking. And, you know, one of the things I kind of look for is to what extent, for the most part right now, there are militias and things like this, but you're not seeing a kind of nationally coordinated militia movement with guns. You're seeing a lot of kind of anarchic lone individuals stocking up with rifles, stocking up with ammo. This Even some of my own relatives here in the South doing the same very thing, right? Um, not seeing them necessarily form unified, coherent militias um, like you saw with the kind of the stormtroopers and, you know, like a, a late 20s, early 30s Germany or the black shirts, right? Um, but uh, once you kind of cross the threshold into that nationally organized movement of people with bumper stickers, uh, gun bumper stickers, that's something I would get a lot more worried about. I'm I'm worried now, but as somebody who studies this stuff, um, right now it seems like we're looking at a lot of individuals with guns, not so much a nationally coordinated movement. Um, but what we are seeing is um, we've already seen that a large like at least a third of the electorate um, is willing to buy into a completely false narrative of the election is stolen in order to actually suppress democracy and overturn an election. And what's striking about that is historically, if you look to you know Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy or Franco Spain, um, you don't need a majority of the country actually to um, have a coup d'etat. You don't need majority support. In fact, you Usually these far-right movements um, get away with doing their coup d'etats when you have about a third of the electorate <laughs> that supports you. They don't typically overthrow elections once they've um, won elections. They, they always do it when they've lost, right? So that's what concerns me. But um, going back to the kind of the, the gun issue and things like that, um, one of the things we haven't seen quite yet is, is the kind of the nationally organized coordinated militias, right? Yeah, yeah. Ruthann? I have a kind of follow-up about that, because while you've been talking, I've been thinking about a friend of mine in college who uh, we, were in, we were taking German, and the professor assigned us to watch on television Leni Weifenstahl's uh, Power of the Will, uh, to listen to the way that German was used in those speeches. And this uh, friend of mine was sitting next to me, and we were watching kind of with our mouths open. And at the end, she turned to me, and, he, and she said, I don't know what to do. Um, and and I, I, don't, I asked her what she meant by that, and she said, I'm Jewish, and I have studied history. I know about World War II. I know about the camps. But watching this, I would have signed up. And I, that's the most scary thing I've ever heard, because not because she scared me, but because I, I, that's what I feel going on right now, is that people who um, should know better and have known better and have been prepared to know better in other contexts feel powerless in some way now, and they hear... They watch Trump, I don't know what's attractive about him, but they, they watch him expressing his power and his anger and, the, and uh, uh, smearing everybody who disagrees with him. And there are a scary number of people who go, yeah, you know, and, and just with just about the same level, it seems to me, that my friend was trying to describe of knowing that it's absolutely not logical to, to, to feel that way, but feeling that way just the same. And when, I, when you say the, the thousand points of fascism, I, that's what I see is the torches. Is this uh, something that it goes along with what you're thinking, or am I just reminiscing about the old days? <laughs> no, no, you're, that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what's important to remember is that, um, you know, if you're not in the fascist base, right, or if you're not in the base of folks 
who are kind of enraptured with these politics, the the words of the glorious leader just sound like nonsense and idiocy. Mm-hmm. That was always the thing with, you know, exiles from, you know, Germany who said like, oh, well, like you, you go to his speeches and he sound like this sounds idiotic and you think like who could possibly believe this stuff, right? So that's a continuity, right? That That is a continuity that those words always seems like nonsense lunacy to those outside the base, right? Mm -hmm. One thing I think that is maybe a bit different, um, and I was just at a a Trump, that Trump rally in Waco, I actually went to that here. Um, Like I said, I'm calling in from Texas, from Austin, about an hour and a half from Waco. Um, And what really struck me about that Waco rally um, was how many people, let me, like within 15 minutes of Trump beginning to speak um, in a speech that was rambling even by Trumpian standards, how many people just walked out, right? Mm-hmm. His own fan of his own base of support um, just started kind of walking away after about 15 minutes, <laughs> right? And I, you know, somebody who studied the rhetoric of, you know, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and all these other stuff. Trump, even by kind of historically fascist standards, if we're going to use that label for him, is really incoherent, even within that history and tradition. (laughs) Right. And so his own base, I, I don't I don't I don't. He doesn't seem as a speaker his and I did talk to some people there, too, as a speaker and as a politician, the dangerous thing is he's gotten a lot of his base to think that an attack on him personally, Trump personally, is an attack on them, right? And so that's the appeal. That said, they don't seem to be enraptured by his every word, right? And it's more like in the broader sense, there's a guy who's trying to do, you know, what I believe in, da-da-da-da-da. But I, I, I wouldn't categorize the Trumpian base as just a bunch of kind of um, you know, as as people who are just mesmerized by the glorious leader's every words, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's what you were saying, but that's 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 clearly at least not what I saw in Waco. That's <laughs> hopeful. Like, okay, well, they they just wanted the, the photo op of saying I was there, and okay, he's rambling on about his stuff again, and now I can go home, right? Yeah. So, so maybe uh, maybe Hitler just didn't have enough saturation on the media, so people could get yeah, sick of him. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I mean, that that said, I mean, fascism is historically is really um, good about capitalizing on new media. And, you know, in, in Hitler's day, it was the radio and film, and they were quite good on that, you know, so. Well, let me reintroduce you to our uh, audience. We're speaking with Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American studies at the University of Connecticut at Storrs. He's co-author of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader with Bill Mullen and his other earlier book, Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the F- Fight Against Fascism in the United States. And Professor Viles, I, I did want to ask you about your view of the danger we face, with or without Trump, that we're now on the path to losing our democracy. And more importantly, what we can do as individuals and as members of organizations to confront and defeat the forces of white supremacy, Christian nationalism, supported by the armed militia groups you you talked about earlier, the neo-Nazis and the domestic terrorists that are clearly working to dismantle and destroy American democracy. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the biggest thing, and that's an excellent question, we are facing a threat, right? Um, It's certainly a threat. Um, One of the things, though, is to certainly not see that threat as so overwhelming as to be paralyzed by it. But to see it as just enough to, you know, take action, right? Um, you know, because what one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I look around the world right now, right? And I look at Orban's Hungary, where the majority of the population clearly supports um, the strong man, right? And who has a distinctly, you know, fascist politics, or with um, Duterte's Philippines, um, you know, is wildly popular in the Philippines, right? One of the things that's a little bit different in the United States is, you know, this is not embraced by, by, by the majority, but more critically, it doesn't tend to be embraced as much by younger people. That is Trumpism and white nationalism and all this other stuff. 
it does have a following amongst the young, and I did see that on display in Waco, right, to be sure. They're, you know, high school students coming out to, su- to support Trump and all this stuff. But, you know, the, not surprisingly, I'm, I'm you know, 50, 51 years old, and um, the a- average person at that rally was older than me. Right. Um, and so and that that gels with what I've seen demographically, you know, and so as what I said earlier, yes, it doesn't take a majority um, uh, for like a kind of a fascist takeover. Right. They don't need to command a majority. But um, I would say that the majority of the United States is certainly not um, inclined to Trumpism. And more to the point, the current moment, the military is not. The military, at least officer class and the military um, leadership, is not really ready for some kind of Trumpian coup d'etat. It doesn't command that kind of gravitas. Now, as I said before, um, what we have seen is that um, certainly in the 21st century, um, there are enough of the population that supports a kind of a fascist takeover, um, you know, to be of concerns. I don't think Trump is going to be the vehicle for that. But what he has shown is that um, if somebody who is much more capable than him and who is a much more mesmerizing speaker, perhaps maybe someone with a military background, maybe someone read with uh, honor, if that person does come along, um, we are going to be in a lot more trouble than we are now. So, Mm But as for as for the moment, um, I would encourage folks to not like be paralyzed by fear and to know that you are in the majority. And um, as as for now, the folks with guns are not buying into you know um, Trumpism as at least uh, a Trumpian takeover. Richard, we only have about a minute and a half left. I don't want to launch into a, a deep question here, but I just I wonder if you might comment on the fact that we country, of course, has had its brush, maybe even plural brushes with fascism in the past. Most recently, the most profound and uh, overreaching movement being that of Father Coughlin in the 30s and then uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, in 1940 with 800,000 members in his party. Any comment there in terms of how that historical antecedent might inform us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's striking to me about those movements is, um, and again, this might sound go against the grain of uh, the stake home bit that I just said, <laughs> is that those movements were a lot more localized than what we're seeing right now. Um, And also, you know, the Father Coughlin movement was Irish Catholics, mostly in the Northeast and Midwest. You know, I would say the Christian right, elements of the Christian rights had um, also kind of, or certainly, you know, fascist equivalent. Those were a component of the population um, that that influenced national politics, but didn't actually affect it to the same kind of crystal clear extent as Trumpism, right? I guess, I, and or the Klan in the twenties, right? And other and other antecedents. We've had those movements in the past, right? But I think the difference is, is we none of them have had the kind of clear crystallization of a leader, a strong man who won an election with those very politics. Thank um, you, Professor Viles. We have to leave. We've got the other program coming up. This has been Resistance Roundtable with Christopher Viles, Professor of English and Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut. We'll be back next month.